Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Time is tight, so I'll keep it short. The usual two segments today, the environmental journalist Tina Gerhardt will talk about the just-concluded COP27 environmental conference, and Lyle Jeremy Rubin explains what led a cerebral young man to join the Marines. COP27, the acronym for the 27th Conference of Parties, which is UN speak for the annual meeting on climate change, was just concluded in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. It was not without achievement, but its accomplishments were just not up to the task. The headline result was that the U.S., led by Chief Climate Envoy John Kerry, agreed in principle to a fund to cover, more U.N. jargon here, loss and damages, that is, the harm suffered by the world's poor countries by climate change, which is mostly the result of carbon emissions coming from the rich countries. For more, here's the climate journalist Tina Gerhardt. Her writing has been published by Grist, The Progressive, The Nation, Sierra Magazine, and The Washington Monthly. Her book, Sea Change, An Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean, will be out from the University of California Press in May 2023. Tina Gerhardt. There was an agreement, but it looks uh, like it was fairly half-assed to use the technical language. Uh, is that a fair characterization? It was very mixed. There's a mixed outcome for sure. And I'm happy to go into details in terms of the good, the bad, the ugly, um, or the good and the bad news. The first thing, I mean, the thing that grabbed the headlines was that there was an agreement on a loss and damage fund, which is something that the poor countries have been asking for for a long time. The U.S. Uh, and other rich countries were not happy with the idea. Is this the fact that Washington agreed to it a signal that it's meaningless, or is this real progress? I have so many different thoughts about the the loss and damage fund that was was created. It is great news. It is a historic shift that loss and damage was, um, as it's called in UN parlance, basically referring to things that have been irretrievably lost, like the entire season of crops in Pakistan, which is a third underwater will experience or damage like flooded homes and businesses. It's great that this has been passed. There are delegates that have been demanding this for decades, literally since the beginning, the very beginning of the UN climate negotiations. So the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. And I think the reason it's an important step for climate justice is that it marks a shift in the mindset because it clearly announces that the blame for the climate crisis rests with the countries that bear historical responsibility, and it should be said reaped financial benefits during the time of producing emissions, and that communities in the global south are disproportionately experiencing these effects of these emissions. So that's the part that I think is historic. But your other question that you asked is, is this really going to pan out? I think there's reasons to really have doubts. In 2009, so over a decade ago, nations in the global north promised to deliver funds $20 billion per year uh, by 2020. Most of that money has never been delivered. So one of the people at the climate negotiations, Mohammed Adao from PowerShift Africa, he said, what we have now is an empty bucket, but we need to fill it so that support can flow to the most impacted people. They agreed on the, the idea in principle, but there's no funding. Yep. They have discussed how the funding is going to be set up. They talked about the fact that 24 nations, basically committee representing 24 nations, are going to meet over the next year to discuss the funds form, who's going to contribute, how, who's going to receive the funds and how. And they're supposed to put forward proposals in advance of the spring 2023 meeting of both the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. There was a lot of discussion going in, making this happen at the specific COP. Credit really goes to the Alliance of Small Island States. It's known as AOSIS in, in UN parlance. And then it was strongly supported by G77, which now includes 134 developing nations, least developed countries, the African group and other nation clusters, and of course, individual nations. But the G77 is important here because this year it was led by Sherry Raymond, who's Minister of Environment in Pakistan. And Pakistan was determined to get the loss and finish fund across the finish line because of the catastrophic climate events that it has experienced and is still experiencing it 
even if these have fallen by the wayside for a lot of press coverage. There's floods that, as I mentioned, have inundated a third of the country. They've impacted 33 million people. About half of them are children. And they've unleashed uh, $30 billion worth of damages and killed over 1,500. And then compare that with the fact that Pakistan's responsible for less than 1% of global greenhouse gas emissions. They were very strong in making sure that this uh, worked out. Two, what's important is the efforts of negotiators inside were supported by the calls of civil society, the protesters, the youth that were outside, even though there was a lot less of them this year at COP27 because of Egypt clamping down on protests. I saw a comment from the Environment Minister for the Maldives, the world's lowest lying nation, who said, we're celebrating loss and damage, but we've failed on mitigation and adaptation. Uh, Is that a fair characterization? That's absolutely fair. And I think that falls into the category of of bad news. Unfortunately, even if the the agreement commits to holding temperatures to 1.5, actions, which is what mitigation refers to, how are we going to, in UN parlance, what are we going to do to reduce those greenhouse gas emissions? Actions have not been taken, nor were they outlined as to how 1.5 was going to be insured. So specifically, COP27 failed to phase out fossil fuels. And I think maybe that shouldn't surprise given the strong presence of the fossil fuel industry. There was over 600 fossil fuel lobbyists, as reported by Global Witness. That's an amazing stat. Had they not been present in that kind of force before? Were they feeling threatened? Is that why they were there in such big numbers? You're spot on. I think they feel threatened. Um, this is a declining industry. I mean, the you know the cost of, of solar has gone down by 90%, wind by 70%. But I think that's one reason they're becoming dinosaurs and they know it. It's a 25% increase over last year. So this is one of the largest numbers of um, fossil fuel lobbyists. And then there was a really strong push. And this has to do with, I mean, we're hearing this right now in terms of the World Cup and human rights violations there with Qatar. Uh, We heard it a lot with regard to Egypt and human rights violations. But who hosts is actually really important. So the strong push for fossil fuel nations and specifically Saudi Arabia, Iran and Russia At this COP, a lot of people are saying made itself noticed. Two, we shouldn't count out, we shouldn't think only of countries in the Middle East as oil-rich nations. According to Oil Change International, they released a report during the COP that the U.S. is only followed by Saudi Arabia in permitting the most oil and gas expansion this year. Carmen Caprilis from the Women and Gender Constituency, she at the closing COP plenary said, quote, this COP is already lost and damaged. And if you want to fix it, you could start by kicking out the polluters, end quote. I take that as a reference to the fossil fuel industry. Another person from Reuters, Thomson Reuters said, how about we have the UN climate negotiations decide that COP host nations must be limited to countries that have a national climate action plan that's aligned with 1.5. I'll add one detail that Simon Lewis, who is a climate scientist, pointed out. He said, when you look at why the COP27 presidency was so staunchly not receptive to even contemplating the phase out of oil and gas, it might relate to the fact that Saudi Arabia just deposited $5 billion in Egypt's central bank just this past Wednesday. Oh, my God. Uh, Yeah, let's talk a bit about Egypt. As host, its uh, disgraceful human rights record um, was foregrounded, but also as host, it is the president of the the enterprise and uh, didn't do such a great job, right? No, it did not do such a great job. So I've been covering um, the annual UN climate negotiations for a decade. There are others, and their coverage varies, but I'm, I'm citing them here for the fact that they are seasoned veterans of covering the UN climate negotiations, such as Lisa Friedman of the New York Times, Fiona Harvey of The Guardian. They said that it was just shocking what kind of a disarray existed with this COP presidency. So There's a lot of uh, delegates and and journalists who on the ground were criticizing that access to snacks, water, food, bathrooms was impossible. But in terms of the negotiations, what's much more important is that the COP presidency was apparently doing things like sharing only parts of the text with different delegates, not the entire draft text or not having meetings where different parties who had differing viewpoints were together in the room to to work out their differences. 
it's not as though when these uh, final texts are negotiated, everyone is necessarily in the same room, but it is more common practice that people who have differences of opinion on specific matters are brought together to, to have a conversation. Now, is this a matter of, uh, this is a term I once heard applied to men's incapability of doing housework. Is this a matter of selective incompetence? It could be selective incompetence. I think, I mean, the things that really were not in this text is this phase out of fossil fuels rather than a phase down. And I think Egypt has specific interests, um, the kinds that I just mentioned, um, in terms of its economic threads with the US, with Saudi Arabia for maybe not wanting to to push as forcefully to ensure the phase out rather than the phase down. There were delegates that really wanted to make sure that fossil fuels were mentioned and that a phase out was mentioned. And what the text actually talks about is a phase down. So this goes back to last year's COP where India in the 11th hour asked that the phase out be shifted to a phase down, which is obviously much more mealy-mouthed and unclear as to what that means. And then rather than a phase out of fossil fuels, the language that's in the final text is of unabated coal power. And that's an issue because, first off, it's not all fossil fuels, it's just coal power. What unabated specifically refers to is carbon capture and storage, which allows the use of coal to continue. Carbon capture and storage is is not in place. It's very expensive. It has not been scaled up. And because of the expense, it's not clear it can be scaled up. So basically, when you say a phase down of unabated coal power, you're allowing coal to continue. And you're not saying a phase out of fossil fuels. Somebody was was commenting on this, the executive director of Greenpeace Southeast Asia, he was commenting on this. And he said, look, if the bathtub is overflowing, you turn off the tap. And basically, that's the problem with what comes out of COP27. They have not put in any language that closes the tap on the source of emissions. I think there was some talk about carbon markets, um, carbon trading. What happened with that? Yeah, there were new carbon rules that were included that lack transparency, and they allow questionable accounting practices. They create loopholes for polluting countries and industries. Basically, again, as with the previous example, not really forcing them to radically reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And all of this is such an issue because this is the decade in which we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. This has to happen by 2030. They They need to peak by 2025, and then they need to have been reduced by 2030. So kicking the can down the road on an issue like climate change is a severe problem because this is the time in which we need to be making radical cuts to emissions. I'm speaking with the environmental journalist, Tina Gerhardt. And then there was also talk of uh, the Bretton Woods institutions, the World Bank, IMF, getting involved in funding more post-carbon transition. Uh, what that look like? The Bretton Woods transition is is an incredible topic that one could talk for an entire hour-long program about. Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, has basically been putting forward this Bridgetown agenda that she's been working on for a year. So she turned heads last year at the opening ceremony of COP26. And she basically said that one needed to consider overhauling these structures that were created in the wake of World War II, right? So the United Nations, but specifically also the Bretton Woods structures that came into existence in 1944. And she followed up this year at COP27 with a proposal that she thinks could really change things, which is, I I mean, I think it really changes how things operate in terms of the World Bank and the IMF, and that's part of her focus. But she's citing a debt crisis that is exacerbated by the pandemic, a rise of living costs, the climate crisis. And she wants the IMF to do the following, to suspend debt payments for the poorest countries, to defer interest surcharges, and to make a billion US dollars immediately available to nations that most need it. She's also looking for most poor countries to get a specific clause in their loan repayment plans that says if they're hit by a natural disaster, those repayment plans are suspended, they don't have to repay. And the reason for this is that nations in the global south are saddled with more debt while they're also facing the cost of the climate crisis. There are other issues that she's looking to change, which is that 
Nations in the global south are borrowing at less favorable interest rates. I believe she cited 13 to 14%, whereas nations in the global north are allotted loans at 3 to 4%, I believe is the figures that she cited. So she's asking for equity there too. And this, you know, it's very much like the climate crisis. I mean, these, these are nations that are indebted and hardest hit by the climate crisis that have profited the global north, which has historically been the largest emitter. Hearing these sums, you're talking about a billion here, 20 billion there. The U.S. military budget is approaching a trillion dollars now, uh, which is also the world's largest polluter and producer of greenhouse gases. The money is there. It's just that uh, the rich countries don't want to spend it. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for bringing up that point. Yeah, people are often mystified as to where is all the money going to come from, especially given the current crises. But there was a study that was released during COP27 by the Transnational Institute, or TNI, that found that if the U.S. military were a nation, it would be the fourth or fifth largest global emitter. So it kind of begs the question, like, why is all this money going to the U.S. military when it's desperately needed by frontline nations to fund an energy shift or to address the impacts of the climate crisis? Um, another example would be to put a simple tax on oil revenue because that would generate immense amounts, especially given how much they made in the last quarter. Not investing in new fossil fuels, because I mentioned the US, followed by Saudi Arabia, had invested the most in terms of new oil and gas permitting in 2022. So not investing in new fossil fuels would generate revenue. I'm concerned in the US that these things aren't going to happen, because Democrats couldn't even achieve them when they held both. And how did John Kerry uh, and the US generally perform at this? That's a tricky question, it seems. And I say this from going to the press briefings and listening to either people who were in the meetings themselves or NGOs who were involved more closely in the negotiations. It seems like they were speaking out of both sides of their mouth. Kerry was speaking about supporting the loss and damage initiative publicly. And yet he and the EU were some of the major holdups to getting EU implemented. I mean, the EU said we are only supported by the US. They said we're only going to support this loss and damage facility, but with these strings attached. They said together with the US, funds should come from a range of sources, including both developed and developing nations. And the issue there is that China, which the UN still classifies as a developing country, although it's currently the world's largest emitter and it's the world's second largest economy, it would not have to pay into loss and damage. And the US has consistently over the last decade been demanding that China actually step up in terms of both paying in to these kinds of funds. And this is this is a new one that it really got heated with China on, on the paying in this year. But it's definitely been saying, I we won't go first unless China also agrees. It's been using that to just to block action for a decade. That really detracts from the U.S. as the historic largest emitter and its responsibility. And then the EU also attempted to dictate that the funds be available only to the most vulnerable nations. And here again, it was supported by the U.S. The EU's concern is that countries listed as developing but really well off financially could benefit. That created concerns about vulnerable countries as to who is going to define vulnerable and how it would be defined. Yeah, I get that China doesn't have the historic responsibility that countries like the U U.S. and EU have, but uh, they are really a pretty big fish now. Oh, they are, definitely. And I think the fact that this was, to, to me at least, um, this seemed new this year that the focus has, as I said, often been on the issue of emissions reductions. The U.S. won't move unless they unless China moves, and that's how nothing moves. This is the first time that I really saw moves being made where pressure was on China to also pay into these funds. The U.S. didn't support the implementation of loss and damage. I mean, Kerry, you know, to come back, cycle back full circle to your question, Kerry did not. I mean, he also did this talking out of both sides of his mouth, but he, he the U.S., really did not support loss and damage last year because it runs the risk of leaving developed nations on the hook. I mean, it opens them up to liabilities in an incredible way. And so one workaround that they have found is that the funds for loss and damage are not going to run. And he, there's countless interviews you can see where um, in the last two weeks where he said this, the funds are not going to come specifically from nations, but also from private foundations. That's something the U.S. pushed for, and also through multinational banks. So they're really trying to make sure that nations are not on the hook here. 
I can understand uh, trying to get capital to pay some of the bills, but uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not optimistic on that really happening. Yeah, no, no. I see people saying that the 1.5 degree um, target, uh, the maximum average temperature rise, is doomed. Is that uh, your feeling? Oh, it was terrible to see that, or just to see see it reported that way. Because I think um, the reason being, I think the the moment that one you know starts reporting it, it becomes read as fact, which means that sticking to 1.5 is is over. And to me, um, that would be terrible because 1.5 is is to stay alive is the mantra of Pacific Islanders, right? And weirdly, the EU started mentioning 1.5 to stay alive during COP27 as though they had invented it. That didn't go over very well. This has been the mantra of Pacific Islanders for a long time, but there's a reason it's the mantra of Pacific Islanders because anything more than that means the loss of low-lying atolls predominantly in the Pacific. Also, you mentioned the Maldives earlier in the Indian Ocean. So so this means entire nations, their histories, their cultures, their languages, their wisdoms, and that's already happening at 1.1. I mean, Kathy Jetnil Kishner from the Marshall Islands was talking in her closing um, remarks at the, at the closing plenary about the islands she has already seen disappear in her lifetime. So this is a demand of the utmost urgency of low-lying atolls, but I'll add too, because this also is not covered in the news as much as it should be, that currently with the 1.1 we're at, drought is devastating the Horn of Africa, the easternmost part of the African mainland. So that's affected 36.1 million people currently in Ethiopia, Somalia, and Kenya. I mean, if we had 36.1 million people affected by drought in the US, I think it would probably not not be in the news. So that, you know, and then of course, there's the flooding of Pakistan that I mentioned. These are all impacts at 1.1. And unfortunately, the UN released a report the week before the climate negotiations that found that we're currently on track for 2.1 to 2.9 degrees Celsius. Wow. Um, okay, finally, um, how worthwhile is this process? There's a lot of criticism of, of the UN climate negotiations. They've been going on for 30 years. They haven't solved the climate crisis. That would be the long version short of the criticism. Um, a lot of revenue expended in the conferences, CO2 emissions to get there. It is the largest conference that brings together people working on the environment. And there's something to be said for that, whether that's the activists, the journalists, the delegates, the scientists, there is something to be said for that. It is a really unwieldy process. But I'll say too, as I've been looking at other people's takeaways from COP27, um, there was one called reform the cops and just do away with them and maybe have a different structure. Climate change is a global problem. And that's I think the main reason why this has been so hard to solve, aside from capitalism and entities not wanting to wean themselves off of either the profit machines or the fossil fuels that they're closely connected to. But it's also the challenge of this being a global uh, crisis. And the thing that is amazing and continues to be amazing for me about COPs and, and why I think it's so interesting to cover them is you have 100, almost 200 nations from around the world And you hear from them. And when you hear from the majority of the globe in the situation that it is facing, it gives you a very visceral sense. It's not like the G7. It's not like covering G7 or G20. You really get a visceral sense of what's going on around the world. It's not, it's not a good story, but it's an important one to hear and to take action in response to. So in other words, uh, a lot better than nothing, but really far short of good enough. Yes, absolutely. That was the environmental journalist, Tina Gerhardt. Her book, Sea Change, An Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean, will be out from the University of California Press in May 2023. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. I got your letter today And I miss you all so much here I can't wait to see you all And I'm counting the days here I still believe that there's gold At the end of the world And I'll come home To Illinois On the day after tomorrow 
And it's so hard And it's cold here And I'm tired of taking orders And I miss old Rockford town Up by the Wisconsin That was some of Phoebe Bridger's cover of a Tom Waits song, The Day After Tomorrow. And that's a lead-in for this interview with Lyle Jeremy Rubin, whose book Pain is Weakness Leaving the Body is just out from bold-type books. The book is not at all a conventional war memoir. Instead, it's a reflection on what makes a bookish guy join the Marines, as Lyle did, and the intersection of the brutal side of masculinity with the U.S. war machine. It's a very smart and thoughtful book. Lyle Jeremy Rubin. I was thinking, as I was reading this, about the gendering of the memoir. These days, it seems to be a very female genre, and yours is very much centered on masculinity, which I, I think is much less common, though it shouldn't be. Um, but uh, have you thought about that, the relation of the topic uh, and genre? A lot of good work is being done in academia and, and in media, mostly by women or by people that don't identify as cis men or whatever. I think it's always important for self-identifying men, particularly men who have spent a considerable part of their life in very manly institutions like the military, to speak to men in ways that encourage them to think more critically about their own lives and, and their own understanding of manliness. But in your writing, of course, that manliness is very closely tied to imperialism, American imperialism uh, and imperial violence. Uh, the personal and the political come together in a very important way here. One way I've often thought about the book that I was writing is that you have like a lot of good macro, often political or leftist critiques of empire and imperialism and capitalism. You also have a lot of good first person narratives and literary works that are in one way or another uh, related to American militarism and war, particularly the military memoir. But I think you rarely, this has been done before, but it's, it's rare to see a, an attempt at kind of merging both the, the macro discourse or the macro critique with micro storytelling. At some point you say, still, I don't understand why I became a Marine. It seems like a lot of the book is about that, you know, proving yourself manly, incarnating your right-wing politics of your early years. Uh, what are the unexplained bits here? You could say like the book as a whole is me asking why the hell I joined up in the first place. I came to see my decision as somewhat insane. Why would you volunteer to pick up a rifle and, and, and murder strangers thousands of miles away? So I think it's an important question to ask and at least try to answer. It was very gradual. But when I really sat down to try to answer this question, gender and my own search for my own manhood became front and center quite naturally. I mean, the military is probably the most popular option for winning your ticket to manhood if you're an aspiring man. Increasingly, you could say it's also becoming an option for aspiring women to maybe achieve some kind of manly form of womanhood. I became especially interested just in like how insecure I was prior to, during, and even after my time in the military, and how many people around me seemed to travel very different, but in that sense, you know, surrounding uh, the theme of insecurity, uh, somewhat similar paths. I became very interested in this kind of relationship, or I guess you could even say dialectic between a need to feel secure and strong and being, being able and willing to defend yourself and, and your loved ones, particularly your women, with this omnipresent, all-encompassing insecurity that you're always feeling and you're always reacting to in all sorts of unhealthy ways. I've always been struck by the fact that we have a term ex-Marine. People don't talk about ex-Army or you know, ex-Navy in the same way. There's something really different about Marines, it seems. What is the cultural essence of that Marinehood? Yeah, that's interesting. It's funny because when you're in the Marine Corps, at least when I was in, if you ever said ex-Marine, every other Marine in the room would correct you and say, there's no such th thing as ex-Marine. You're a Marine till the day you die. Uh, which I, I think in a way, ironically, actually speaks to the point you're making that the Marine Corps isn't just a job. I mean, it's, it's very much a lifestyle and even it, it drives at the kind of essence of one's own identity, at least when you're in. Uh, and for a lot of people, even when you get out and going back to this theme of manhood, I mean, the most I believe the most long ranging recruit slogan for the Marine Corps throughout the Cold War was join the Marine Corps where, where men are made or so, something to that effect about making men. 
And of course, you see similar type of sloganeering in the other branches. But I think manliness and manhood are just inextricable from marineness. So when I'm talking about being a Marine throughout the book, I'm often talking about being this this kind of man that militarism, and I think even more specifically, a, a kind of imperialist militarism or an imperialism both makes and, and produces and reproduces and also relies on in order to keep the machine of war and the broader empire going. Imperialism seems like a real core value of the Marines. It's the, at the beginning of the, the Marine Corps hymn, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and there's one section of the book where I talk about a very well-known document among Marines, particularly Marine officers, called MCDIP-1. It's, I mean, that's the acronym, but it's, um, it's kind of the doctrinal handbook uh, for the Marine Corps, the foremost handbook. Throughout it, it's, it's just littered with allusions to the British Empire and the Roman Empire and the need to defend the West from from the barbarians. I mean, it's very explicit. And you see similar language and historical vignettes in other very important documents, like another pamphlet that we all read called Leading Marines. We really do see ourselves as, as the latter day Spartans or legionnaires. You describe your family background. Your father um, had a violent temper. Uh, you say elsewhere that a lot of your fellow Marines had broken families of various sorts. What about this relation of oh, what Freud called the family romance to uh, the personality of people who become Marines and then the culture of the organization that uh, uh, emerges from it? I think it was important to talk about trauma because trauma has become one of the most popular topics to talk about. It's often talked about, in my mind, in very narrow, not particularly helpful ways. It's very individualized. It's all about the trauma of this or that individual or determining the trauma level of this or that individual. I increasingly became interested during my time in the Marine Corps and once I got out in how, A, life itself is trauma. (laughs) We're all traumatized to some degree. We all, in one way or another, engage in traumatizing those around us and maybe even people we don't know. That life, to a large degree, is the exchanging of pain and suffering and trauma and hurt. And B, how reigning structures of power, uh, in the case of my book, namely the U.S. war machine and, and U.S. empire, use and reuse and deploy and redeploy this trauma that people have all suffered in one way or another and also have also imposed on others. I didn't feel like I can do that in a convincing way without talking about my own childhood. I don't think my childhood was especially traumatic. And I think that was actually one of the reasons I needed to talk about it, because I think part of the trauma discourse is about encouraging the most sensational versions of trauma or the most extreme while relegating to the margins any other kind of trauma. But I think there's a real spectrum there. And I think recruiters, their ideal subject <laughs> is someone who has endured pain or abuse of some kind or the, the constant threat or fear of abuse and therefore are very driven by this idea of self-defense. Another bit of Freud, um, the turning of passive into active. So you take the trauma that's done to you and turn it out to the enemy? Absolutely. I'm by no means uh, an expert in Freud. I've I've learned a lot from people that I do consider uh, experts. And particularly, I I do want to give a a shout out to Patrick Blanchfield, because I think he's done an excellent job psychoanalyzing empire and imperialism and in ways that have certainly helped me understand my own trajectory. Absolutely. In a lot of ways, empire and militarism and all forms of domination and exploitation are ways of activating or mobilizing latent forms of Freud would say passive sense. Like you, I had an adolescent fascination with right-wing politics, though not as long or as consequential as yours. I was drawn to libertarian dreams of freedom. Um, what was it for you that drew you into the right wing? I did suffer a bout of right-wing libertarianism. I experimented with all the different right-wing varieties at the time. This was like the, the early 2000s. What attracted me to all the different right-wing variations was this notion that Everyone had a choice whether they wanted to be successful in the world or strong in the world. And ultimately, even though it often wasn't put in these terms, whether they wanted to be an agent of power and domination or an object or subject of it. 
even libertarianism, which which often sells itself as as a you know a politics of, of liberation and personal autonomy, I think as we've learned in recent years, seeing how how many libertarians once you scratch are indeed fascists beneath is also very much about proving yourself an elite among non-elites. Freedom is for the best. Yes, yes, exactly. As someone who lived in a household that, you know, it was always a very loving household. And I, you know, I'm very grateful for that. I have a wonderful relationship with my parents today, but in a household where I was afraid quite often of my father's ubiquitous aggressions, he never beat us or anything like that, but he was, he was often very intimidating. And then also having endured uh, both the physical and sexual violence of peers, I was very attracted to this idea of, of becoming some kind of elite that would protect me from these threats that I felt were all around me. It's in your title. It's, of course, a Marine saying, pain is weakness leaving the body. But there's a contempt for weakness in the right-wing mind, isn't there? Yeah, for sure. I wouldn't say it's the presiding assumption of the right, but certainly one of the leading presumptions on the right. Some people are better than others, <laughs> or some people are more deserving than others. And that isn't always synonymous with some people are stronger than others, but it often is. Pain is weakness. Leaving the body is not only a mantra for Marines, although it, it originated there and, and is most commonly used there. And it's not only a mantra for gym rats, although, again, it's also very commonly used there. I think it is either spoken or unspoken mantra for our political culture as a whole, which if, if it's not a right wing political culture, it's certainly an imperialist one. Empire, all empires uh, require something like this ethos uh, in order to maintain and expand itself because empire is an incredibly brutal beast. It brutalizes first and foremost those it's conquering or those it's exploiting or dominating, but it also ends up brutalizing or I would even say simultaneously brutalizing the brutalizers and everyone caught in its midst. You recall some conversations with your right-wing comrades where you talked crap about every subaltern um, demographic you could think of. That really is core to the worldview, isn't it? Yeah. That scene where I'm talking about, I'm basically with my college buddies. So I went to, you know, an elite college, you know, Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. I was basically talking about a scene with, with my right-wing buddies at Emory. We were the respectable Republicans, Today, we might be considered the, the never Trump Republicans, although interestingly, a lot of those guys that I was friends with actually ended up becoming Trumpists. But at the time, I mean, we were the intellectual wing of the Republican coalition and often, you know, a wing that implied um, a formal anti-racism and, and a formal anti-misogyny. And here we were using every racist word or trope in the book on a regular basis whenever we found ourselves at a table with some drinks. So I think this is kind of the libido or the, the, the subconscious or collective unconscious of the right to a large degree is that it's, it's always, always about defining one's own merits or strength against the demerits or weaknesses of others. I'm speaking with Lyle Jeremy Rubin, author of Pain is Weakness Leaving the Body, just out from bold-type books. It's something similar with the Marines, though. They're officially anti-racist and anti-sexist, but the actual life from day to day is anything but. Yes. And, you know, I was in the unique position of I, I tried to go to officer candidate school the first time. I didn't come from a military family. I'd never done JROTC or ROTC in college. So I, I was physically very fit and I was academically very sound. And I think in time I learned to become a pretty decent leader, but I was not at all familiar with the culture of the military. So I actually didn't make it through officer candidate school the first time. And I then went, I took a circuitous route to a boot camp in Paris Island and was enlisted for a year and a half and then went back to officer candidate school. And I say all this because I did experience in ways that I think most Marines and most people don't being both enlisted and an officer. And I think officers are trained to avoid using certain words, racist words, misogynist words, are trained to be, at least in public, avatars of virtue and, and uh, oftentimes, you know, anti-racist virtue. But in the enlisted ranks, uh, I would say that's not so much the case. I mean, when I was trained up at, at, at Paris Island, the drill instructors relied on, our, on racism to encourage us to kill. 
Haji, which you know, is a term of respect among Muslims, one who makes the holy pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca. I mean, that was, we use that as, as an all-purpose term for all the people we'd be policing and killing once we got deployed. And there was all sorts of homophobic and, and misogynist stuff that was used daily uh, in order to motivate us. I can't speak for the military today, although I still have people I know that are still in. Um, but I imagine it's not all that different, despite what we read you know, in newspapers and and elsewhere about um, the continued professionalization of the military. You do make an interesting point about the the contrasting training of the officers and grunts. It's like there's a a, a tracked educational system producing two different classes of marine. Yep. When I became an officer, you'd hear this very often that ultimately our job was to rein in our marines when needed, yeah, as if. They were hounds on a leash. The process of basic training to describe, it's just one of depersonalization, dehumanization. It just really breaks you down and reforms you, right? It sounded hellish to me. Could you talk some about the feeling of going through that? You know, at the time, it was painful in, in the way that anyone who's ever seen Full Metal Jacket or any other movie or TV show that, that uh, depicts boot camp would think that it's painful. But it actually took me a long time to realize how radical that experience is. I mean, it really is about demolishing your prior self or selves and replacing it with a new self or selves, one that is very much part of this larger Marine Corps whole. I mean, I think the fact that we are a Marine Corps, that word core, I think is very important. It is about reintegrating us after we've been broken down into this wider body. I write about this a bit, that that, that goal of destroying the self and then redeploying the pieces for the sake of this wider organic whole is never fully achieved because that's just not how the human psyche works. I mean, we're always rebelling against any kind of external coercion or any attempt to become part of a wider whole. Freud writes about this very eloquently in Civilization and Its Discontent. This kind of tension between wanting to be and being driven to be part of this wide organic whole, and then also at both a conscious and subconscious level, always rebelling against it and always wanting to be an individual at the same time, leads in all sorts of interesting and I would say often uh, very counterproductive, dangerous directions. It works ultimately to the to the purposes of empire and imperialism in the sense that you have all these mostly young people who are being treated like on a regular basis and their own sense of self and individualism is often being threatened. And at the same time, the whole reason they joined up in the first place was to become this strong individual, this individualist male archetype. If you're in this type of situation, it makes you very angry and full of rage and then, uh, you know, as you said earlier, this, these passive forms of trauma get, end up getting turned outward on, quote unquote, the enemy. Now, your report on the war itself, your, your experience in Afghanistan, takes up only about 40 pages of the book, and it's set off in a different typeface. So I was curious why the war itself, your account of it is so short, but second of all, why that uh, typographical uh, isolation? I was always very reluctant to write a military memoir, much less a war memoir because I'm very cognizant of how, as Jarhead once put it, and, and many other military books and movies have, have, have in one way or another insinuated, there's no such thing as an anti-war book or an anti-war movie. I mean, they all end up getting interpreted in pro-war ways. Is there some sort of transgressive pornography about it or something? Yeah. I mean, I write about how, aside from being a, a culture of domination, it's, it's also a culture of unabashed sexuality and sexual depravity. I don't think that's entirely under, un, unrelated to the, the culture of domination. I think often it's, it's about sexual domination, which is why I think one of the reasons why war is, is so often uh, plagued with sexual violence and rape. Yeah, I guess there was a part of me that, you know, I had to kind of depict that to some degree because I think it is important for the purposes of what I'm trying to write and argue. But I also didn't want it to be pornographic. I didn't want it to become another source of entertainment or titillation for the reader. I basically arrived at some kind of compromise in the form of, okay, I will write about my time in Afghanistan, but it will be brief, fragmentary, and it will be embedded within a larger narrative that is working against any possibility of titillation or the pornographic, salacious appeal. 
you mentioned sexuality and war. Um, the Marine Corps, all military institutions, are in some degree, you know, homosocial. Uh, that the bonds that are uh, quite intimate and profound right, uh, that that are produced among um, the the soldiers. But of course, it's also deeply homophobic. What was that like navigating um, those contradictions? In the first chapter about my childhood, I write about how this homosocial dynamic, you know, originates often in one's youth or childhood, and how it's often a kind of training that you're being trained to both endure pain and give pain. Since pain often involves the body, and since when you're a kid, you're also exploring with your sexuality or using your body in sexual ways for the first time, uh, it often involves uh, sexual versions of, of this kind of training for pain. Both the violence and the sexuality often, get, often end up getting confused. I came to realize that this is often the case in the military as well or at least in my case in the Marine Corps, we're very young, we're very sexual and sexualized, and we're also seeking uh, various forms of domination. And we are playing or experimenting or training for our own exploits of domination and sexuality on a daily basis with each other. One thing you you hear from most Marines is that, yeah, sure, you know, we used to play gay chicken or whatever. There's always this term about gay chicken, this game where uh, you basically uh, bait each other for how gay you can be. And the one who's the gayest wins the game. And you always hear these kind of urban legends about it eventuating and, you know, two guys actually having sex. Maybe that's not just an urban legend. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't think these are just frivolous shop talk. It's central to understanding this kind of conditioning that I'm interested in. What was the process of your disillusionment with your patriotism, your right wing, rah, rah, America politics and uh, your political and personal transformation? How'd that happen? Well, it was very gradual. And, you know, I'm not someone who believes that you can ever really answer a question like that. I think we're very opaque beings, uh, both among ourselves and within ourselves. I think I maybe might come up with different answers for the rest of my life. But at least in the book, and at least at this time, I do think that my very first time stepping foot at Officer Candidate School in Quantico marked a kind of shattering. There was this breaking down that we all experienced. But for me, it really just shattered my, my sense of moral self. Despite the fact that I was this Republican and I, you know, I was saying all sorts of racist things in the company of my right wing friends, you know, I still saw myself as this humanitarian neoconservative type who was bringing democracy and freedom to the greater Middle East. The first thing you realize if you're someone like me and you go through any kind of boot camp or officer candidate school experience, even at officer, you know, I talked earlier about the differences between officer candidate training and Marine recruit training. But still, they're both centered around violence. And they're centered around very vulgar versions of power and of strength. And I, I think at some level, I just kind of intuited right off the bat that this, this kind of culture is, is obviously, I mean, in retrospect, I'm ashamed that it took me this experience to realize this. It's so obviously incompatible with any kind of humanitarian politics. Right from the beginning, at least at a subconscious level, I was embarrassed by this. And that, that my own convictions were just so easily laid bare uh, after just a few days in Quantico. And I think the rest of my time in the military was me either repressing these doubts or these realizations or at times, you know, wrestling with them. I, I started reading uh, more kind of left leaning websites. I actually read uh, Crooked Timber a lot. You know, eventually I, I stumbled upon a symposium on uh, the book reviewer, George Shalaba. He had written this book called What Are Intellectuals Good For? Uh, this is before I went to Afghanistan. And I read that book in a matter of days and ended up writing a, a snail mail letter to George, who's now a friend of mine, telling him how much his book helped me make sense of my own doubts in the, in the Marine Corps. I would argue that my own disillusionment was... Well, A, it, it preceded my actual deployment to Afghanistan, and B, it was unique in the sense that it was it was intellectual. I mean, there was all the subconscious stuff going on, but I was always a very bookish kind of person, and I used books to self-narrate my own disillusion and my own conversion experience. Once I was in Afghanistan, that was very much the point at which, after a few months there, just seeing all this training brought to bear uh, in very graphic, immediate ways, 
I write about one scene in particular. Uh, this actually happened toward the end of my deployment, but spoke to many other experiences that I took part in, where I witnessed a corner of a very remote, tiny village in the desert just get demolished by a group of very bitter Marines who had lost friends. At the time, I was videotaping it like everyone else. But while I was videotaping it, I was very, I think, aware of just how far this diverged from my initial idealistic vision of this war. And finally, what mark did the experience of being in the Marines leave on your personality today? Do you still feel the traces? In a way, I think Marines are right when they say once a Marine, always a Marine. Marine conditioning, whether or not you go to Afghanistan or another war zone, you know, it, it is a radical form of conditioning and it's a lasting form of conditioning. So even though I've been lucky enough to be able to transcend the most violent and least healthy versions of that conditioning, I think I'll always be very hypersensitive and hypercognizant of, of power relations and strength and domination. And also, most importantly, my own role in furthering these structures of domination. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm very much burdened with guilt and all the rest. And I guess one of the other things I was trying to do with this book is move beyond just a narrative of war guilt or moral injury and place that war guilt and moral injury into a larger com a political conversation. Moral injury itself and war guilt in itself is often very anti-political. There's actually a great book I'm reading right now called Combat Trauma by uh, Nadia El-Hajj, which talks about the various chapters of understandings of moral trauma and war guilt since the Vietnam War. And that originally was a very much a politicized kind of diagnosis that was designed to interrogate U.S. empire. So in answer to your question, I think for the rest of my life, I will very much be interrogating uh, U.S. empire and my own role in it and always feel a need to do whatever I can to rein in that empire, much the way I was once trained to rein in my troops. That was Lyle Jeremy Rubin, whose book Pain is Weakness Leaving the Body is just out from bold-type books. It tickled my pride that Lyle mentioned two behind-the-news guests, Patrick Blanchfield and George Shalaba, as important influences. Not, of course, that he heard them here. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a song that's mentioned in Lyle's book, Fortunate Son by Creedence Clearwater Revival. Till next week, bye. <laughs>